0: Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. You hold the line faithful to duty, confronting our nation's foes with implacable will. A vital element in keeping the peace is our military, so that no potential aggressor may be tempted to risk his own destruction. You hold the line true to honor. Living by a moral code regardless of who is watching. Our surrender will be voluntary because by that time, we will have been weakened from within spiritually, morally, and economically. Welcome back to the Holding the Line podcast, a podcast dedicated to exploring the intersection of innovation, technology, and policy, and more importantly, their impact on national security and foreign affairs. I'm your host, retired U.S. Navy Commander Guy Snodgrass. And I'm excited about today's guest. We've got joining us former U.S. Deputy Secretary of Defense, the Honorable Bob Work. I first got to know Bob well when I was working as a special assistant in the front office for then-Secretary of Defense James Mattis. Bob was still serving as the Deputy Secretary of Defense in the Pentagon and had the chance to work with him closely on several issues, including putting together the Department of Defense's budget, how we were going to communicate that with members of Congress and to the American public, as well as the 2018 National Defense Strategy. So what's interesting about Bob is not only the fact that he's held senior level positions within the U.S. Department of Defense, but it's his depth of knowledge and just how long he's been around the national security arena. Bob joined the U.S. Marines in 1974 when he was commissioned as a second lieutenant. And then over the course of the next several decades, he made his way up to the ranks before retiring in 2001 as a colonel. Now, while he was still in uniform, he had a couple jobs that really stand out, and I think helped position him for the pathway he's on right now. And that is that he was in charge of what's called the strategic initiatives group for the Commandant of the Marine Corps, the Commandant being the senior most uniformed member of the US Marines. And because he has such a wide purview, he needs people who are specialists in various areas. But you typically have certain offices that are the ones looking well in advance, what's the future of the Marine Corps look like? How does the how does the Marine Corps need to position for success for decades to come? And that's what a group like the Strategic Initiatives Group does for you, and Bob led that group for the Commandant. He also had an opportunity to serve as military assistant to then Secretary of the Navy Richard Danzig. After Bob retired from the U.S. Marine Corps in 2001, he went to a think tank, the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments. He worked and continued to work with the Pentagon on a number of strategic areas of interest, he was then asked in 2009 to come back into federal service as the undersecretary of defense for the United States Navy. That's the number two ranking civilian, the number two most senior civilian in the entire United States Navy. So he held that position for about four years before he once again departed federal service to return. He was going to now become the CEO for a think tank. But only within about a year later, he was asked to return for a third time into federal service to serve as deputy secretary of defense. And that's how I got to know him. He had served for the period of time when Ash Carter was Secretary of Defense, when the Obama administration transitioned out at the end of eight years, and most of those political appointees went with them. Secretary Mattis had asked Bob to stay on as Deputy Secretary of Defense for the near term because we had not yet had a new Deputy Secretary of Defense confirmed for the Trump administration. And so that was great for us because not only did he have a, a depth of knowledge, decades of experience in the Pentagon, decades of experience in national security, but he'd also had recent relevant experience in running the Pentagon. And when you think about how that makeup works, the Secretary of Defense is usually what we call up and out, meaning the Secretary will be interacting routinely with the White House, with members of Congress, with overseas allies and partners, and conducting a lot of the trips around the world to wave the flag and to hold U.S. interests, so going to NATO ministerials and other such events. Typically, and traditionally, the deputy secretary of defense, the job that Bob held, is the one that's looking in and down. And that means the deputy secretary is heavily invested in budgets, heavily invested in the running of the Pentagon, how is it structured? And, and what are the acquisition programs doing? And and how is everything coming together to ensure that the Pentagon is continuing to function effectively for national security and for America's interests? So, it was in that role that I uh, began to work with Bob. He, When he was deputy secretary, he was incredibly insightful and helpful as we were working on the two, 2017 plus up to the budget. Because of sequestration, we'd had years of trailing defense budgets, which had really hurt the U.S. military. And one of Mattis's first goals was to restore funding to the military so we could not only begin to restore our warfighting power, but to position the military to transition into the future. Because if you think about it, a lot of the equipment and material that's been used in fighting the war on terror, that was beginning to age out. And you're, of course, using it very heavily because the military has been, frankly, at a constant state of war for about two decades now. So you needed the renewed funding to not only restore the current state of the military, but to also position for the future. And so we worked hand in glove with Bob and the team to position the budgets and also to ensure that the way we communicated it to Congress and the American public and our allies and partners was accurate. And so he was very helpful as we were working on congressional testimony for Secretary Mattis. He was incredibly insightful as we were talking about how we wanted to come up with the three lines of effort that formed the backbone for the 2018 National Defense Strategy. It was during those discussions and interactions with Bob that I came to really appreciate his depth of knowledge in history. So one of the things that he discussed frequently was this concept called the third offset strategy. And during my time, Uh, not only as a student history, but also during my time as a student at the Naval War College. We had learned about the first and second offset strategies, but those those are terms that are not used too frequently until, I think, more recently, and especially to a more broad community outside maybe a small tier of individuals in the Pentagon. So when the opportunity presented itself, I wanted to ask Bob to come on the podcast and just break it down for us uh, to do two parts. So this first part is going to be a discussion with Bob as we first introduce the concept of an offset strategy what it is and why is it important not only for america's national security but also for americans Uh, why should we care about having an offset strategy and what is it bias and then we're going to spend our time talking about the concept we're going to spend the time talking about historically what that's meant and then we'll kind of wrap up part one before we transition into the second podcast for next week And that's going to be a look more at some of the nitty gritty technologies, as well as what does it mean when you're in the middle of a pandemic, when you know that there's going to be significant economic ramifications, that's also going to affect the fiscal stability of the United States, let alone our allies and partners around the world. And of course, that fiscal instability means it's going to have an impact on the US budget and of course, the US military. So the budgets we had in 2018 and 19, significant increases from where they had been in recent years are likely the height of what we're going to see for at least the next few years. And as we seek to rebuild our fiscal house and get it back in order. So can the third offset strategy survive in that type of fiscal environment? So that's what we're going to be talking with Bob about not only today for this podcast, but next week as well for part two. So thanks for joining us for the discussion. And with that being said, let's go ahead and kick it off. Bob, thanks for joining us. Good to have you. it's great to be here. This is a episode of the podcast I've been looking forward to having in general and specifically with you for a number of weeks now because I know during my time in the Department of Defense, uh, working on the National Defense Strategy, other wide-ranging strategic documents, Third Offset Strategy was a very big part of that. So if you wouldn't mind, I mean, our podcast is listened to by a lot of Men and women across America, not necessarily national security professionals, but people who just want to know more about the importance of national security in our everyday lives. So, if you could, for them, could you just tell us real quick what is an offset strategy? Why is it important?
1: An offset strategy was a term used in the long Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union. It was used, as near as I can tell, for the first time in the 1970s and early 1980s by Cold Warriors like Jim Schlesinger. Harold Brown, both of them were secretaries of defense. William Perry, who was the undersecretary of defense for research and engineering, and later a secretary of defense himself. Paul Kaminsky, people who were working hard uh, in the long competition with the Soviet Union. And essentially what it was about was using technology to offset a, a specific advantage by the Soviet Union, using our technological superiority to offset something. In the case of the Cold War, all the way up through the end of the Cold War, offsets were focused on offsetting the Soviet Union's numerical advantage in conventional forces. And the United States simply could not afford, nor did it want, to match the Soviet Union soldier for soldier, tank for tank, Airplane for airplane or ship for ship. It wanted to offset the numerical advantage the Soviet Union enjoyed using technology.
0: So, using that as an overview, and of course, we really want to dive into the details of the focus of this episode, which is the third offset strategy. But that being said, you know, you mentioned that there have been, you know, this implies this is the third one. What was the first one and what was the second one?
1: Well, the first Cold War offset strategy occurred in the 1950s, right after President Eisenhower was inaugurated. The Soviet Union had an enormous numerical advantage over NATO, uh, which had just been formed in 1949. There was a lot of talk on how many American units would be required to establish conventional deterrence to keep the Soviet Union from deciding that they would invade Western Europe. And so he was very, very focused on the economics of the time. Uh, He was still trying to buy down debt from World War II. He wanted to get to a balanced budget. And he was told that we would need upwards of 90 divisions, which are big, big units of forces, uh, maybe 15, 16, or 17,000 people, depending on whether it's an infantry division or an armored division or an airborne division. And he said, there's just no way that we are going to maintain a peacetime army of that size. So what he did is he turned to atomic weapons. He said, I will purposely have a smaller army, but I will arm the army with battlefield atomic weapons, artillery shells that threw an atomic warhead, rockets, missiles. In 1956, the smallest missile was called the Davy Crockett. It was based around a warhead that weighed about 76 pounds. And that was all the way down to a battalion level. And a battalion is a force generally uh, led by a Lieutenant Colonel, maybe 40 years old or 38, and between five and 600 uh, soldiers or Marines in the battalion. And so he was very serious. I mean, there were lots of atomic weapons and that was how he would deter a Soviet conventional invasion of Europe. That was the first offset.
0: I smiled a little bit when you said Davy Crockett because I had the good fortune when I was a grad student doing a joint thesis for both nuclear engineering and computer science. The way I bridged that divide was to work at Los Alamos National Labs on the Stockpile Stewardship Program. And so, of course, you're working with men and women who had been there for the heyday, for decades of development, and not only development, but the testing of nuclear weapons. And you'd watch these scientists and engineers walking around with their coffee mugs. And for me, as a former fighter pilot, you know, you'd know, you have your squadron logo with your call sign on one side, they're walking around with uh, mushroom clouds on their, on their mugs. But that was one <laughs> of those iconic bl- uh, black and white photos that they showed was someone with a Davy Crockett munition. You also had those howitzers you could use to deliver nuclear munitions in a tactical sense, if you will, detailed largely for the European theater. So that's the first offset. And then that kind of gets us into the Vietnam era and the second offset. So can you maybe describe for us kind of how that changed?
1: Yeah, the United States comes out of Vietnam, very much like we're coming out of the long wars in the Middle East. Over that long war in the East Asian uh, literal, the Soviet Union had modernized their forces appreciably. They had the new T-62 tank, they had the new BMP fighting vehicle, they had enormous numbers of new self-propelled artillery, uh, towed artillery, rockets, etc. And the United States, of course, had been tied down doing an irregular war, even though there was a lot of conventional fighting in Vietnam. And they said, uh, how are we going to stop the Soviet Union with this new modernized force? The Soviet Union had taken a look at our Offset strategy, which relied upon atomic weapons, and they developed a new campaign model specifically to deny NATO the opportunity to employ atomic weapons. And what they would do is they would attack in what they referred to as echelons of forces. So there would be a first echelon that would pound up against the NATO defenses, and it would be followed right on its heels by a second echelon of forces and it would be followed right on its heel by a third echelon of forces. And the whole purpose was to generate a penetration. And through that penetration, they were going to inject what they called an operational maneuver group that would go deep inside NATO's rear. And their calculation was once an OMG got deep in the rear of NATO, there was no way that they could employ atomic weapons. So they had a specific campaign design to keep us from using them. At the same time, they had achieved strategic parity. And so the threat of using nuclear weapons early in a conventional war just didn't make any sense anymore. So the United States was saying, what are we going to do to continue to offset Soviet numerical strength with vastly improved and modernized forces? They established a thing called the Long Range Research and Development Planning Program. And they brought in people from industry and throughout the Department of Defense and they looked at this. And they came up with two options. One, nuclear weapons that they called more usable. Things like the neutron bomb, which would kill primarily by a burst of radiation rather than blast, uh, et cetera. And lower yield weapons. And then they said the other option was to replace nuclear weapons entirely in our campaign model with what they referred to as conventional weapons with near zero miss, what we know today as precision-guided weapons. And that's what they decided to do. They said, this is the way we are going to offset Soviet strength. In 1976, Bill Perry, who was then the Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering, Established a program under DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, called Assault Breaker. And essentially, what it meant was we are going to utilize guided munitions which have accuracy independent of range. Unguided munitions, like shooting a rifle or dropping a a dumb bomb from an airplane or shooting a 16 inch shell from a battleship, most unguided munitions would miss their targets. And the missed distance would increase rapidly over range. And that's why unguided weapons warfare relied so much on mass. Um, guided weapons would change their trajectory to home in on the target or aim point. So if you shot a guided munition, it was, it was more than likely to hit it. And like a Tomahawk land attack missile is as accurate as a thousand monocle miles as it is at a hundred mm-hmm. of accuracy independent of range. So the whole, the whole thinking behind the assault breaker was, we're going to start hitting the echelons far before they get to the NATO front lines. We're going to start, and the way they described it was, we're going to look deep, we're going to shoot deep, and we're going to kill deep. And so the whole idea was to kill as many Soviet tanks and armored personnel carriers in the second echelon before it hit the front line and then kill as many in the third echelon. And the way they would do that is to use guided munitions and they would establish a battle network to find out where the enemy was and then to target them. So it was the combination of guided munitions and battle networks which would allow uh, us to look deep, shoot deep and kill deep. And that led to the second offset. Assault Breaker was a demonstration program, and it was demonstrated in the desert in the United States out in the Southwest in 1982. The Soviet general staff immediately got it. By 1984, the chief of the Soviet general staff said, whoa, the Americans are going to be able to achieve the same battlefield effects with conventional weapons that they were originally intended to use when they were originally intended to use atomic weapons, and they said this screws up our entire campaign design, we can't win. The Ameri- in fact, you know, uh, one uh, Norman Friedman said, the Soviets said the Americans are ma- mu- magicians. You know, they say they're going to do something technologically, and then they do it, uh, and that was what was referred to as the second offset, and it was demonstrated in a nascent form in Operation Desert Storm in late 1990, early 1991. And of course, soon thereafter, the Soviet Union imploded. So the United States was the only competitor on the field. They had demonstrated, this was the classic definition of a military technical revolution or a revolution in military affairs. Guided munitions battle network warfare made subordinate combined arms warfare, which was what everyone practiced up until that time. The Iraqi army practiced mass combined arms warfare, and they were just a series of targets. Uh, So everyone immediately understood that something momentous had changed. And as it turned out, China was very weak militarily in the 1990s and couldn't compete with us at that time. And the Soviet Union imploded and couldn't, compete until they reconstituted themselves. So for 20, 25 years, the United States has had an enormous conventional advantage.
0: Yeah, that's that's great, and it's a good uh, succinct way to to take a look at the second. I know when we would do a lot of detachments, for example, when I, I had two tours of duty in Japan with a fighter squadron, and we would do our detachments down to Anderson Air Force Base in Guam, and there's a fantastic monument there. That's really, truly, when you kind of peel back the onion, it's, it's for the second offset strategy because it details during the Vietnam War how they were using radio frequencies to help guide in munitions in a more precise manner. So as you mentioned, the first offset strategy, the United States seeking to offset Russian mass by the use of nuclear weapons, specifically tactical nuclear weapons, so that you could counter an asymmetric advantage. The second offset doing the same thing. Now you can reduce the amount of forces that the United States has to... Develop, procure, maintain, and employ. Because if you can use precision-guided munitions, you can use one, maybe two bombs to take out a target of interest, rather than carpet bombing, which requires not only a large number, large amount of ordnance to be dropped, but also or employed, but also a large number of assets to do the employment of the weapons. So you've been able to to scale back the amount of forces we would need for commensurate effects. So I guess that gets us to the third offset strategy. What, you know, when was that developed? And and What does that look like for us now that we're actively pursuing a third offset?
1: Right after Desert Storm, the late, great Andrew Marshall, who was the director of the Office of Net Assessment in the Pentagon and had been the director for almost 40 years at the time, he was a long, cold warrior. And he said, look, right now the United States will ride this advantage of the second offset for some period of time. We don't know precisely how long that will be but we can be certain that our competitors are probably not going to cede this advantage to the United States over time. So he started talking about what he would refer to as a consolidated revolutionary regime or a mature revolutionary regime. And what he meant by that bus was that all of the major competitors would have achieved rough technological parity in guided munitions battle network warfare. Now, this was not a thing that the joint force, our joint force, the U.S. military, wanted to see. When we were, had a monopoly in this type of warfare, we could be assured that our conventional advantage was almost insurmountable. Um, there were ways that people would offset us. You know, they might try to offset us by going nuclear, like North Korea and Iran. They were saying we want to deter the assembly of a battle network because if the Americans are successful in setting one up and starting to fire at us, we're we're toast. So they would just like we did in the early Cold War. We went after atomic weapons to offset a numerical advantage. Uh, North Korea and Iran started to pursue nuclear weapons to offset our technological advantage. Well, he said. At some point, we're going to have this mature revolutionary regime, and you better be ready for it, because the force that you have now is not ready to fight against an adversary that can look deep, shoot deep, and kill deep as well as we can. It's going to require you to spread your forces out. It's going to rely a lot more on stealth and unmanned systems. It's going to rely on a whole bunch of new operational concepts. So you better start getting ready for it now. And essentially, the 2001 Quadrennial Defense Review, which for your listeners is a uh, is a review done every four years at the start of every new administration, which takes a look at the defense requirements of the nation and says this is what we're going to do for the next 20 years. And the 2001 QDR was a road not taken. It was published just towards the end of September 2001, and all through the two Q- QDR, it was about how do we start to transform the joint force for a competitor that we don't see on the horizon yet, but we are certain will come at some point. And that competitor is going to be able to give as well as it can get in guided munitions battle network warfare. But the tragic attacks of 9-11 completely shifted the attention of the department away from high-end state-on-state conventional warfare and towards counterterrorism and irregular warfare. Now, by 2012, the Department of Defense started to worry about what it was seeing uh, in both China and Russia in terms of their high technology capabilities. So much so that Ash Carter, who was then the Under Secretary of Defense, for Acquisition Technology and Logistics, set up an office called the Strategic Capabilities Office, and the tasking to the SCO, as it was called, was, I don't like what I see the Chinese doing in the Western Pacific. I want you to devise countermeasures to what they are doing, and I want you to come up with some game-changing technologies of our own to give Chinese military planners pause. That was followed in June of 2013 by a presentation by then Deputy Secretary Ash Carter to the National Security Council on the threats to our space constellation. Since we project power across the oceans, we have to bring our battle network with us. And the only way that really works is if you have space-based capabilities. You have communications, you have intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, uh, you have weather satellites, all of the things. You have GPS, Global Positioning System, which allows you to sync up your network in time and space. And so it made sense for both Russia and China to start to develop anti satellite capabilities. And by 2013, it was becoming evident to everyone in the Department of Defense that if a war kicked off on the Earth, it could very easily rapidly uh, go into space. So I think those were the kind of precursors. So by 2012, we, the department started to worry about an approaching mature revolutionary regime where China and Russia were catching up with us in guided munitions and battle network warfare. When I arrived, when I was asked to come back in uh, as the deputy secretary, um, I spent a lot of time talking. Oh, well, let me back up just a little. I was the undersecretary of the Navy, which is number two civilian in the department of the Navy from 2009 to 2013. Uh, and I left government service in 2013. And for the first time, you know, when you're a high level official in the government service, you don't have a, a lot to time to think you're just consumed by your inbox. So I had seen all of the different technological trends that Ash Carter had seen. They really concerned me. And so I knew when I was coming back, when I was asked to come back in as the deputy secretary, I said, I am going to do everything I can to divert the attention of the department away from these incessant wars in the Middle East and more towards these two great power competitors uh, that actually had the wherewithal to potentially defeat us in a major confrontation. I spoke to all, as many of the people who were still alive that worked on the second offset. I spoke with Bill Perry, I spoke with Paul Kaminsky, I read everything that Harold Brown had written about offset strategies. So as I said, the first time that I became aware of the term an offset strategy was in talking to them. And I immediately started to think in terms of what would be the offset strategy to allow us to regain our conventional superiority over adversaries or potential adversaries that had technological uh, parity with us.
0: So let me me jump in real quick and just, because two things stand out from what you just told me. One is the saying that I've heard throughout my entire career, but it becomes true, especially in Washington, DC, and in national security circles. But there's a relatively small number of individuals who are really plugged in with the trend lines. Because when you said the stand up of the strategic capabilities office that's uh, located over with DARPA, you know, it's interesting to note that the first director for SCO was Dr. Will Roper, who I had a chance to work with alongside with you when I was in Secretary of office. And of course, now he's the Assistant Secretary of the Air Force for acquisitions, and he's helping lead the charge there with a lot of it. So it's great to see that when there's been an identified shortfall or an identified need to move into a new era for not only the Department of Defense, but services, that a lot of those individuals can be well-placed. And, and to your point, the second thing that stands out is not only just the networks that are involved there to help advance the Department of Defense, advance national security, But it's that depth of history and the important role it plays, because we've all seen when you have someone with a bright, shiny idea or something they might think is unique, and they're the first ones who've thought about it. And then suddenly you you start doing that look back and you realize this is not necessarily a new problem, whether it's capacity, capability, or an overall strategy. Those who've come before have studied these. And so by doing what you did, by talking with former Secretary of Defense, uh, Harold Brown and others and and Bill Perry, that you get a really good sense of what has been done before, what worked, what didn't work, and how you can now apply that those lessons to be even more impactful while moving forward. You and of course others involved. So you know I jumped right in as you were as you were talking about the third offset. So that's something I noticed that you were a big champion of whenever I was in Secretary Mattis's office. In fact, I'll always remember the support you gave when we were when we were shaping the testimony for Congress to not only ask for a supplemental increase to the 2017 defense budget, but then to also position for a bipartisan budget act that would help fund the military for 2018 and 19. And one of the reasons for that was the need for some increased funding to help develop the technologies that would be required to implement a third offset strategy. So what technologies do we need to bring to bear to help restore that asymmetric advantage?
1: Well, I need to step back one thing because One of the things I regret the most is that the thing that people remember most about this time frame was the term the third offset strategy and what we were doing. But the third offset strategy was just one or the output of just one of seven and later eight lines of effort in the Defense Innovation Initiative. Now, when I spoke with Secretary Hagel about the need to really get after Uh, the military-technical competition with our great power rivals. He was thinking more, look, it's just very difficult to get the department as a whole to shift its vector and shift its mindset towards a new thing. Uh, He said, this is one of the hardest things that any secretary can possibly do. So. What he wanted to do, and he called it this, he announced it in November 15th, 2014. He said, I'm going to announce the Defense Innovation Initiative. And it was a major shift. He was saying, we've been in a war for 13 years, you know, in the Middle East against irregular competitors. Uh, meanwhile, Russia and China have been catching up with us. We need to turn our attention towards that and we need to um, really ramp up innovation within the department, innovation writ large. And he announced an Advanced Capabilities and Deterrence Panel or an ACDP to run the DII. And he told me as the deputy, I want you to run the ACDP. We made the ACDP into a tri-chaired organization. The deputy secretary of defense, the number two civilian in the Department of Defense, the vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the number two military officer in the armed forces, and the principal deputy director of national intelligence, the number two civilian in the intelligence community. And so we had decided from the very beginning that it would be a tri-traded organization, and it had seven initial lines of effort. The first one was strategy. We wanted all, everything we were doing including in our technology to be driven by grand strategy or you know strategy in the broadest sense of the word. And we actually uh, we asked undersecretary of defense for policy to create competitive strategies for both China and Russia and they actually completed them. In late 2016, too late in the Obama administration to make any type of an impact. So, in my view, the 2018 National Defense Strategy is the natural end result of line of effort one. It talks about the strategy writ large. And if you read the NDS, there is a very important theme in there about trying to regain and sustain our conventional deterrent and our conventional military technical advantage
0: as you mentioned that was such a sea change and it was and i think correctly and appropriately perceived as a sea change in the 2018 national defense strategy was that there was that tectonic shift if you will at least the stated shift from current day operations in the war on terror to refocusing efforts for capability readiness and deterrence against the near peer or the nation state competitors. And so, of course, the four that were deliberately mentioned in the national defense strategy were Russia, China, North Korea, and Iran. Yes. So as we step back into thinking about an increase in the competitive nature, and of course, one thing we haven't touched on directly, and I don't want to really anchor on this, but I remember in my first tenure in the Pentagon around the 2012-2013 timeframe, that's when we were, we were growing increasingly concerned about what was known as A2AD the anti-excess area denial. This was specifically China, but others taking a look at their own asymmetric capabilities. How can you, if if America is a globally deployed force that wants to and needs to, to maintain its superiority around the world, needs to have the ability to deploy forces into other regions of the world, such as the South China Sea, how do they then deter that or how can they offset our capability? And some of that is through their own development, as you mentioned previously, of precision guided munitions, rocket forces, the ability to uh, target ships at sea, to basically hold hold you at bay. And then even if you're able to gain access, then to prevent you from maneuvering within, within those regions with impunity or at least uh, at your own discretion. And so you know, that kind of started leading us down uh, one particular road of, of how do we combat that but that takes us right back to, I guess, the third offset strategy. There's a number of technologies that were not only highlighted in the national defense strategy, but that now you've got someone like uh, Dr. Michael Griffin, who is running research and engineering for the Department of Defense, who's been laser focused on some of those. So in your mind, what are maybe the top three, four, five technologies that the United States is currently pursuing that will have that asymmetric advantage for the U.S. military in and, and aiding national security?
1: Well- the third offset strategy came out of line of effort three, which was a competitive strategy to attain and sustain military technical superiority. That's a big mouthful. So we just used the third offset strategy. That was shorthand for that. So we had a strategy on how to compete with Russia and China on the world stage and uh, pursue our vital national interests. And then we had a subset, a competitive strategy on how to Attain military technical superiority. And that was the third offset. Now, this offset was going to be different than the first two because the first two were designed to offset the numerical advantage that the Soviet Union enjoyed. This was going to be an offset that was going to try to accommodate a competitor that was, as you know, had caught up with us in guided munitions battle network warfare. So it was all about how do we make battle networks that are better than their battle networks or guided munitions that are better than their guided munitions, that would give us a competitive advantage if we ever came to war. Now we looked at a lot of different things. I mean, when I was the deputy secretary in the first six months, I would have all sorts of technological in briefs. So a person would come in and say, oh wow, Uh, We have got to dominate 5G. If we lose the 5G competition, we're doomed. The Republic will crumble. And so I said, okay. And I went home and drank tequila. And I'd come in the next day and a guy would say, ah, 5G, that is so yesterday. It's synthetic biology. If we fall behind in synthetic biology, we are doomed. The Republic will crumble. So I went home and I drank a little more tequila. And then the third day, someone would come in and say, it's all about quantum computing. And so, we're in this technological tsunami. There are so many things that are happening right now in technology. What happens is how a competitor will put these pieces together to gain an advantage. The Canonical example or the example people often use is Blitzkrieg, the German way of warfare in the early part of World War II. Everybody had radios everybody had airplanes and everybody had tanks but the germans said this is how you will use these things together to fight war in a vastly different way and they surprised everyone now the thing about a military revolution like that is you have to ask yourself is how easy it how easy is it for your competitors to copy it And as soon as everyone saw what the Germans were doing, they said, well, we got radios, we have airplanes, we have tanks, we could do that too. And so by 1943, 1944, the U.S. Army and the Soviet Army was out blitzkrieging the Germans. Um, So in this case, we knew that we were in a competition that had a much different temporal cycle than the first and second offset. The first offset, we had an advantage for about 20 years. Second offset, we had an advantage for about 30 years. We didn't think we were going to gain that type of an advantage with the third offset because as soon as we demonstrated how we were going to use these technologies together, all of the technologies would be immediately available to all of the competitors. And they'd be able to be a fast follower or they would say, hey, I'm gonna use these slightly different so I can have a competitive advantage. So the Defense Science Board basically said, of all the things you have to really get right is you have to pursue autonomy. Now, this isn't autonomy in the way that a technologist might think of it. This was more about command and control because the Chinese theory of victory against us is, we're gonna blow apart the American battle network. That is our most important goal. If we can blow apart the American battle network so they can't look deep, and they won't be able to run the, or, I mean, make up orders to shoot deep, they'll never be able to accomplish their campaign objectives. So they call this system destruction warfare. Um, the Chinese conceive of battle networks as operational systems. The Russians call them reconnaissance strike complexes. They're all the same. Um, they are these big constructs that commanders use to figure out what is going on in the battlefield, what do they wanna do to uh, achieve their objectives, and what effects do they need to achieve, to, I mean, to apply to achieve their objectives. So all of them are the same. So the Chinese is all about blowing apart our network. DSB said under these conditions, autonomy will help you. Because if autonomy, the way they defined it, Or the way we defined it was it was a command and control process to push decision making to the tactical edge and to encourage all individual force elements to be able to act even in the absence of communications to higher headquarters. So we said if the Chinese are intent on blowing apart our network, we have to have a network that can take that punch and keep on going. So the way to get to autonomy, they said, was AI artificial intelligence. And they said AI-enabled autonomy would allow your battle network to operate not only under conditions of degraded communications, but would operate at a faster speed than a legacy battle network and would give you a big advantage in combat.
0: And and for from a layperson's perspective and, and what we're really advocating for when you talk about autonomy is John Boyd's concept of the OODA loop. You observe, you orient, you decide, you act. So basically this is uh, something that U.S. Air Force Colonel John Boyd, who was widely known as a s- significant strategic thinker within the U.S. Air Force had come up with this concept of the OODA loop saying the individual, the unit, the the military that can process information the fastest, and then subsequently act on it, see the results of that action and then continue to tighten that cycle will gain a a significant advantage whether it's conflict i mean businesses use this all the time as a way to, to seek a competitive advantage we see stock market for example if you can uh sense movements with the markets or if you can trade even just a fraction of a second faster you can capture more profits so that's where autonomy is really driving us towards and one thing i just wanted to clarify with you because it's interesting i know even within the pentagon itself and certainly throughout the military it sounds like there may be a little bit of a mis- misconception because I know when people talk about this concept of the third offset strategy, they tie it immediately to hypersonics, to the railgun, to additive manufacturing. And what I think I hear you saying is that while all those technologies are enablers that will help us maintain that military superiority into the future, but it's really the pursuit of autonomy, which leads you uh, into, like you said, a, a mesh networks into Machine learning and you know, by extension, artificial intelligence. That's that's really where we want to invest to help with autonomy. Is that a fair statement?
1: Yes. I mean, uh, the DSB was very clear that said of all the technologies that are out there, AI-enabled autonomy was the most important, primarily because it was applicable to everything the department did. It was applicable to your back office processes so you could do robotic process automation. It was applicable to predictive maintenance. It was applicable to predictive logistics. It was applicable to medical. It was across the board, whereas the other technologies would make individual piece parts better, but autonomy would have the broadest impact. And so it highly recommended that the department pursue AI-enabled autonomy at speed and scale. And the theory of the case bus was this. Um, Each battle network has four grids. It has a sensor grid. So the sensor grid is looking out there, trying to figure out what the heck is happening in the battle space. It reports back to the command control communications uh, and computer and intelligence grid. And that's where a commander tries to make sense of what the sensor grid is telling him or her. And they decide what type, what is their objectives, what are the intent, and then they develop courses of action, and then they choose a course of action and make plans, and then they order, make, I mean, send orders to the effects grid. And the effects grid is the grid that actually applies effects, both kinetic and non-kinetic, on the battlefield. So you have a sensor grid, a C4I grid, and a effects grid. And then you have a sustainment and regeneration grid that you're sustaining the forces that are in combat and you're regenerating combat power that is lost as a result uh, of uh, war. So the theory of the case was to start injecting AI-enabled autonomous applications in each of the four grids. So in the sensor grid, you might put an AI machine learning algorithm right on the sensor so that the sensor would be able to take in information and sort through all of the information and say, hey, the commander said that I, you know, the sensor, the commander said the sensor should be looking for this particular thing. I have found it, I will send it back quickly. So getting AI machine learning right to the sensor is very, very, would allow you to move very fast, just like you said on the OODA loop. It would allow you to start sending things directly back as quickly as possible. The, an AI-enabled autonomous system in the C4I grid might be a decision support tool, which helps the commander come up with courses of action uh, and analyzes the course of action and makes predictions on which course of action might uh, be best to follow. Or it might be just helping an analyst sort through an enormous amount of data and telling the analyst, this is the data you need to look at. You don't need to stare at the screen for 40 hours. I'll tell you in 40 nanoseconds what you need to look at because I've gone through all of the data and you've told me what you want to uh, see, and here it is. And then in the effects grid, it would be having autonomous weapons, weapons that would be able to have automatic target recognition. You fire the weapon out and you tell the weapon, if you find a battleship, hit the battleship. If you can't find a battleship, hit the cruiser. If you can't hit the cruiser, hit a destroyer. And the the artificial intelligence guidance package would be able to make all those decisions without a human uh, intervening. And then in the sustainment and regeneration grid, there's predictive maintenance, there's predictive logistics, there's predictive medical outcomes. Uh, so you start to insert as many of these AI-enabled autonomous capabilities in all four of the battle network grids, and the hypothesis of the third offset was at some point, you will reach a tipping point, and the whole network will start to operate at a much higher speed and give you an advantage in decision, an advantage in action, an advantage in sensing, et cetera. And you you didn't know when that tipping point would occur, which was why you needed to insert as many as possible at scale. Uh, And then at some point, we called this a human-machine collaborative battle network, because a lot of the autonomy would be in machines. Uh, And so there would be machine autonomy, human autonomy, and they'd be working together as a team. And the whole thing, these human-machine collaborative battle networks would make obsolete or subordinate the battle networks that the Chinese and Russians are building and would give us a big advantage.
0: Like you mentioned there at the very end, when you think about the third offset strategy, it's all about speed. It's about speed and decision-making. It's about speed of effect, the ability to impose your will to affect the outcomes you want at a pace that your adversary or your competitor will find to be unsustainable. So even if the technology for different types of weapon systems or different types of overall capabilities might become rapidly diffused throughout an environment, other nations can use those same technologies. Like you mentioned with precision-guided weapons, you find yourself in a situation where, yeah, you might have them, but we can maneuver, we can act, we can We can generate effects at a pace that's not only quicker than what you can do, but we can then subsequently reevaluate, assess, and maneuver yet again or, or launch the second set of effects in a way that, much like your example of the Blitzkrieg, I mean, it would be a similar Blitzkrieg from a rapid cascade of effects that are just so overwhelming that you would likely gain the advantage or victory much sooner. So let's, uh, let's wrap it there real quick. And then what we'll do is when we get you back on the phone for the uh, second part of this, then I look forward to chatting with you a little bit more about, you know, how does the current day situation with coronavirus, with the impact on the economy and budgets and what we're seeing with some of our adversaries and competitors, how that's going to affect it. So thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for joining us for part one of our conversation on the third offset strategy with former Deputy Secretary of Defense Bob Work, and catch us next week for part two. In the meantime, if you wouldn't mind, go ahead and subscribe to the podcast, give us a rating so we can continue to sustain our conversations. And with that being said, enjoy your weekend. We'll catch you next week.